If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And I think you'd be fairly lost without a Bible on Sunday evenings as we cover at least a couple of chapters. And it's much easier to follow along when you can uh, read along as well. So just get their attention and they'll get one into your hands. The book of Second Kings continues the history of Israel and Judah that uh, was begun in First Kings. And it ends ultimately with the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom uh, of Israel in 722 B.C. because of their willful disobedience and rebellion against God's word. And then it also records the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah for all the same reasons. And the theme of the book, we can look at it, and I love these historical books in the Old Testament, but they're not giving us merely history. I mean, it gives us history, and that's important, but it's history with a message. There's a reason that it's in the book, and God is wanting to communicate something to his people all through the ages. And the theme of this book is gives us a, a insight or a great revelation of the end of willful disobedience against God's word and the end of rebellion. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1 uh, says, He who is often reproved. And by the time we get done with Second Kings, you're going to say, how many ways can God speak to these northern and southern kingdoms to rebuke them and try and get them back on track? He who is often reproved and hardens his neck, that's his response to God's reproving, will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And the point is, is that God's warnings are never, ever to be ignored by God's people. He doesn't just talk to talk or God doesn't do that. He talks because he's communicating something very important. Now, we look at this and we can say, well, you know, does this warning apply to uh, us as Christians and and in, in a place of disobedience or rebellion. I mean, willful disobedience and rebellion against God's commandments, it leads to a captivity today, a bondage today that is just as great as any Assyrian captivity or any Babylonian captivity, and it's the captivity captivity to sin, as Pastor David shared uh, two or three weeks ago, and uh, as we shared even in this morning's message, Romans chapter 6, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Jesus put it, uh, it, it with just as great a clarity when he declared, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We don't have to be taken halfway around the world as God's people because of our disobedience for us to realize that willful disobedience has put us into bondage, a terrible bondage. We have no ability to break free of any more than they had to break free of the Assyrians. And so the warning is very, very uh, important and very relevant for us today. I think about one of the things that's a little disheartening to me as a Christian, as I watch the world uh, around me, and I'm sure you feel the same way, but we live in this world that really touts uh, the pleasure of sin. I mean, it's just no matter what you want to turn on in terms of television or this or that or billboards or the whole um, uh, radio, the whole, anything that's just going in the eye gate or the ear gate or whatever it is, is the promotion in a very large part of sin in the culture. And the thing that's heartbreaking about it is that in the promoting of sin, uh, almost never does the culture then educate on if you do this, this is the kind of life that it leads to. I remember we will get into the Bible tonight. But I remember when I was in the eighth grade at Ridgeview Junior High School, we were the Ridgeview Rebels. Now, would you name a group of high schoolers? Would you make that their mascot as if they need any help? But I remember looking at these, the, some of the 
young guys and gals that were in that class, a little older, a little younger. And I mean, they were the tough ones and all this kind of stuff. And they just seemed to have the freedom to do any sin that they wanted to. And they didn't have a curfew. Their parents didn't seem to be engaged at all in their life. And it it looked so attractive to a, a young boy on on some level. And then years go by and you see them uh, later on, even as close as in high school and later on in 20s and 30s. And so often you see the terrible price that they paid for that so-called freedom that they were um, propaganda told them all about this freedom and to exercise it, but didn't warn them about what was on the other side of it. Some of them have half their minds today. As a result of it, the Bible absolutely confesses that sin is pleasurable, but it qualifies it. And it says it is pleasurable, but only for a season. And trust me, the season is very, very short. And then all of a sudden you see the ball and the chain and, and the hook and and the destruction that comes uh, with it. And so God's word so faithful to record for us the end of ungodly decision-making so that we can see the full picture. And these historical books do that. It seems almost amazing to us in terms of its possibility, but as we make our way through this book and then we get into the major and minor prophets, the children of Israel, I mean, you're talking about a once fabulously godly people in terms of, of privilege. They will end up Eating their babies. This disobedience that they're engaged in. Dabbling with this God. Dabbling with the world. Dabbling with what the world worships and the nations around them. Before the whole progression is done, women are eating their babies. And the afterbirth of their babies in order to stay alive. Because life has gotten that bad. And if we don't think that these things have any kind of a bearing upon us. All you have to do is look around at all of the children today who are being eaten up and destroyed by the fleshly appetites of their parents. Now, I think it's important to remember as we finished first Kings and we pick up immediately with a king by the name of Ahaziah, that he was a wicked son of the most wicked king that Israel had had up to that time, Ahab, and then his wife uh, Jezebel, and he chose to make his father, his mother, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made all of Israel to sin, his great role models in life. And of course, that's going to end in disaster. Now, Moab, verse one, rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now, Moab at this time was kind of a vassal state to the northern kingdom of Israel. They had been conquered and defeated by them. And as a result of that, they paid tribute in the form of wool and other things on an annual basis uh, because that's what they had to pay in order to enrich the kingdom of Israel. And as was so often the case in the ancient world, when one king would die, uh, the nations that were vassal nations in subjection to that, that particular uh, nation where the king had died would then test the resolve of the incoming king, the son, to hold on to that vassal state and, and whether they were willing to fight a war in order to do that. So this kind of a test was going on all of the time. And Moab, Moab uh, looked at uh, Ahaziah and, and considered him to be considerably weaker than his father. And so they looked at this as an opportunity to throw off this Dominion that was uh, over them. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room of his palace in Samaria, and he was injured. Now, in those days, they didn't have glass windows like we have today. What they would put in the windows would be kind of a lattice grid. Sometimes you can make a grape arbor or something out of lattice and it allowed light to come in and yet allowed the inhabitants of the room a little bit of privacy uh, would also allow the breezes to blow through a very warm climate. And so lattice, a very thin kind of slat of wood is great for that purpose, but it certainly couldn't withstand any kind of body weight if somebody fell against it. 
He is evidently was in an upper story, second story of his palace, or maybe all the way up uh, on the roof. And uh, and as he is uh, doing whatever he's doing, he accidentally falls through the lattice to the ground below. So at least a two story fall, maybe more. So those of you who have fallen from a bunk bed, uh, multiply that times what? And uh, and he fell from it. And maybe some of you have even fallen uh, from uh, a roof itself. And so he was injured. And the fact of the matter is he was injured in a way that he knew immediately. This is life threatening. What has happened to me as a result of the fall? And he's concerned that he wouldn't be able to recover from it. So he sent messengers and said to them, I want you to go and inquire of Baalzebub. The God of Ekron, which was a city that was a center for Baal worship uh, in Philistine kind of territory, about 40 miles away from where he was. And uh, so I want you to go there uh, to inquire of this false god, Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. And here's my question as to whether I will recover from this injury. And so. Uh, This is his spiritual condition. His physical condition is grave. But when now he needs a word about his life, about whether he's going to live or not, he doesn't turn to the God of Israel. He turns to Baalzebub. Do you know what Baalzebub means? Baal means Lord. Zebub means flies. This is the Lord of the flies. I've never been tempted to worship a fly my whole life. And probably this particular Baal was thought to have the power to protect the population from a fly infestation or the disease caused by flies. And so this is the God who rules uh, over the flies. Now, what kind of a small, one-dimensional view of God is that? All I want in my God is that he can protect me from flies. I think we need a little more help than that. The fascinating thing to me is is you look at this and and uh, uh, this worship of Baalzebub, one of the centers of it was in the city of Ekron. And we ask ourselves today, um, what's the last great thing that you've heard to come out of Ekron? What great invention that changed human history? What new technology? What new philosophy? What new advancement in health has ever come out of Ekron? Nothing came out of Ekron. In fact, Ekron doesn't even exist today. Hardly survived this part of its history. And one of the things that that teaches us is that It does make a difference who and what a nation worships. (laughs) You, you, You cannot worship the God of the flies and expect something great to happen among that nation or that city or among that people. It's fascinating. The Bible teaches that we become like what we worship. That's a horrifying thought. If your God is Baalzebub, Psalm 115, the Holy Spirit speaks of all of these idols that were worshipped and they have eyes, but they can't see and hands, but they can't do anything. They have ears, but they, they can't hear. And then he said, and those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. We become like the God that we worship. If a person worships greed, you only become more greedy. Person worships lust. Sex, you only become more lustful. Person worships power. They only become more power hungry. You worship flies, you're going to go extinct. The wonderful thing is, is if one worships Christ, then we'll become more Christ-like. What a privilege it is to worship Him and to have Him as our God. Paul put it this way, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the same Spirit. No nation, no city, no individual person can ever become great 
worshiping the Lord of the flies. Now, this name Baalzebub, we recognize it from the New Testament because by the time the New Testament times come around, it's a phrase that has been attached to identifying the devil. Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees heard about what Jesus was doing and casting out demons. And they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, speaking of the devil. Jesus said, it's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, they were calling Jesus the Lord of the flies, he was of the devil. How much more will they call those of his household? The devil was behind the religious system of Beelzebub. If a person sits down, it doesn't matter if it's Joseph Smith or whoever it might be, sits down and decides, I'm going to make up a religion. And they begin to make up a religion and what they think it ought to be and the rules and the laws. And they plagiarize from here and grab some of this and grab from all these different sources. They put a religion together. The devil is absolutely pleased to come alongside that religious system and then add some kind of element of the supernatural. It's the wrong side of the supernatural. But to add some element of the supernatural to that religion, and it can be a burning in the bosom. Add something to that in order to deceive people and then add his own lies and his own views on the things and then lead the people into the worship of him. That's what was happening with Beelzebub. They thought they're worshiping this thing and they're worshiping the devil. So he's seeking some kind of a word of encouragement from Beelzebub concerning the fact of whether he's going to survive this injury or not. He gave no thought to consulting the Lord, which gives us a sense of the level of apostasy in his heart and in the nation. And so they go out, and then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? So he sends out his messengers and then God sends out his messenger to intercept these other messengers. And then here was the message that the Lord gave to Ahaziah. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Elijah departed. He intercepts the messengers and he says, why are you going over there to get a word? You go tell your king he shouldn't be doing that. There's a God who knows everything right here in Israel. And here's the message. And he's going to die. And Elijah just heads off. He's a man of very few words. Now, notice in verse four, that word, therefore, now, therefore, now, therefore, you always see therefore, you want to know what it's there for. And usually it's referring you back to something prior. The Lord, the message is in verse three, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? It's because he's ignoring the God of Israel and going to Beelzebub for this information that this death of his is uh, is going to occur. And and uh, so uh, the Lord, the, the punishment for consulting this pagan idol rather than the Lord himself, the Lord says, is that you're not going to recover from your injuries. Now, the reason you look at it, and you say, well, why would God uh, strike this man and not allow him to recover, but really as a judgment of him, bring about his death? And the reason has to do with the law of Moses And the law of Moses commanded that anyone or any false prophet that led the children of Israel into the worship of anyone other than the Lord was to be executed, was to be stoned to death. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6. If your brother, and the idea is even your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, The wife of your bosom or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you and says, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, 
of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And so Israel shall hear and fear and again do and not again do such wickedness as this among you. And here is Ahaziah who is leading the entire nation into the worship of this false God. And so God brought this judgment then upon him for that reason. And so he departs. And when the messengers return to the king, he said to them, why have you come back? And the idea is, why have you come back so quickly? I mean, that's a quick, uh, you couldn't get there and back. What happened? And so they said to him, a man came up to meet us, and this is what he said to us. And they're going to repeat exactly what Elijah said to them. I mean, one thing about Ahaziah, when he sent messengers out to get a message, he sent people who could bring back the exact message. I give him credit for that. And this is what he said to us. Go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? And therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Message delivered. And then he said to them, the king said, what kind of man was this who came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, he was a hairy man. So we don't know if. If he had really long hair or he was just hairy on the shoulders and all over the place like that, we don't really know. But you just looked at him and, and a, a distinctive characteristic of Elijah was his hair. And in fact, um, this the description that's uh, given here, it literally means a master of hair, an owner of hair, lord of hair. So they came back and said, this guy's like the Lord of hair. <laughs> so he's a very, very hairy fellow. And just so you know that God is no respecter of persons, Elisha, who will follow him, was bald. So this was his, his hair condition. He also was wearing a leather belt around his waist. So just kind of a rough and tumble guy, no, not wearing silk or anything like this. And then the king said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. He recognized him immediately because he had known about Elijah and Elijah's rebuking of his father for long decades for his sin. And now he realizes that uh, Elijah has risen up by the hand of the Lord to oppose him. And then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men to go and arrest uh, Elijah. Now, what he does here is he sends these as he sends these 50 men to arrest Elijah. As you look at verse 15, as we'll see in just a few moments, the idea is that uh, Ahaziah is, has more in mind than just um, arresting Elijah. He apparently wants to either do him great harm and probably put him to death. That's the intention that he has, because later in verse 15, the Lord is going to reassure after some pretty serious events, Elijah, you go ahead and go down with him now and don't be afraid of him. And apparently there was something to fear up to that point. And, and so this is the mind that he has. He wants, just like his mother Jezebel, wants to destroy uh, Elijah. And so uh, this man with his 15 men went up to Elijah there was Elijah. He just sitting on the top of a hill. He just doing nothing real slow. As calm as can be, the picture of peace. He's waiting for him. And the guy spoke to him. And he said, "Man of God, the king has said, come down. That's in order." And Elijah answered, and he said to the king of the fifty, "If I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men." And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. 
give new meaning to getting fired. But a boom. Now, again at Mount Carmel, the Lord had used fire from heaven, which was supposed to be a supposed specialty of Baal. Baal was supposed to be the god of nature. And so when Elijah calls, Elijah didn't produce it. The Lord did it. But when Elijah makes this call, he's making a point to the nation. These guys are up to no good. They're coming to arrest Elijah and to do him no good. Number two, they are aligned with Ahaziah in protecting the leading of the nation of Israel into idolatry. And so they were worthy as much as he was of the death sentence. And so the Lord can't find anybody uh, among his people. There's so much unrighteousness in the land to uh, execute the judgment of his word. And so he does it himself. And so he causes this fire to come down. And it was designed to communicate not to these 50 because it's too late for them, but to the nation. That you worship this God, but all that's supposed to be ruler over over all of of the weather and all of nature and fire and lightning is supposed to be his specialty. And he can't protect his people from the Lord. It's another power encounter between the Lord and Baal to make a point to the nation. You guys are on the wrong track. You are worshiping someone that is infinitely inferior to what's available to you in the worship of the true and the living God. It's the message. God is still trying to break through to these people, but he's got to elevate the means by which it takes to get their attention and and for them to take it seriously. And we're going to find out that word, word of this travels far and wide throughout the whole nation. And so the message went out. I mean, here the Baal worshipers couldn't stand before the Lord. And so that's the reason for the death of these men, again, in accordance with the law of Moses. Well, the king wasn't going to be deterred. He sent another captain of 50 and his 50 men. And he comes to Elijah and said, man of God, thus has the king said, come down quickly. He adds quickly to all of this. And so he's even more arrogant than the first one. And so Elijah answered and said to them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Now, uh, before this starts to appeal to you as a way of uh, dealing with anyone that might be harassing you, we know in Luke chapter nine, when Jesus and the disciples were traveling through Samaria and on the way to Jerusalem, that they had stopped in a Samaritan village. We would call that the West Bank of Israel today. And they had sought hospitality, a place to stay in the village. And the Samaritans, realizing that Jesus and his disciples were not going to stay in their in their village, but make their way all the way to Jerusalem, they denied them hospitality, which was a great insult in that culture. And so James and John came back with a message to Jesus and they said to him, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And they want to waste the entire village. And they use this passage as a proof text for planting the seed in God's mind that he might empower them uh, to do this. And uh, Jesus very, very uh, clearly uh, cautioned them and us as his disciples from attempting to imitate this particular episode of the Old Testament. The Lord was absolutely righteous, as was Elijah and what they did uh, here in this place. Uh, but our ministries and and uh, for in our lives as Christians were to be marked by something a little bit different. As we talked about this morning, the, the great powerful weapons that we have as Christians is the two great weapons, love and the word of God. To bring the word of God to bear upon a situation and spoken out of a, a, a love for those that were 
we're speaking to. And uh, those are the most powerful weapons that we can use in calling people uh, to repentance. And again, he said a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50, uh, he went up. Now, this is different. The other two called Elijah to come down. He said, no, no, stay right up there. I'm, I'm coming up. <laughs> so he went up to him. And then he fell on his knees before Elijah. So here we see the humility. And he pleaded. I mean, the lesser always asks of the greater. He pleaded with him. And he said to him, man of God, please. He, everybody's getting polite now. And politeness goes a long way. Please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be prescient. Precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of fifties with their fifties. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And so he acknowledges that what has happened here has happened as a result of the Lord, the Lord's uh, judgment against these men. And, and he is acknowledging the supremacy of the Lord over Baal. So the point hasn't been lost on this third captain uh, of the 50. He honors Elijah properly as a, a servant of the Lord, and he, and he honors the, the Lord here and basically says, Could you please, perhaps, in a manner of speaking, uh, consider in some way the possibility of coming with us to the king? <laughs> and then he said to him, Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. And so he arose and he went down with him to the king. And then he said to him, to the king, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore. And he, I mean, just, he's just very true to God's word. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Doesn't change his message. Doesn't matter whether he's talking to messengers. Doesn't matter whether he's talking to a king. He delivers the message. God bless him. And so Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. God's word came to pass. Because he had no son, his reign was only two years, Jehoram became king in his place. And Jehoram was one of his brothers who was also uh, a, a son of Ahab and Jezebel. And he became king in Ahaziah's place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. There's going to be a, a, a test on names beginning with the letter J, the end of Seti. So now we've got a, as if keeping these kings, track of them in our minds hasn't been hard enough. Now we've got a Jehoram ruling in the north and a Jehoram ruling in the south. It's harder than keeping identical twins figured out. And Jehoram in the south of Judah, he was the son of Jehoshaphat. But we're going to read about Jehoshaphat a little bit later in chapter 3. And you say, how in the world is he the king if Jehoshaphat's supposed to be dead before his son becomes uh, the king? But they were kind of doing this vice king thing. They were both ruling at the same time with the idea of kind of a smooth transition when Jehoshaphat would go to be with the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And so uh, here is somehow God has given a revelation. Uh, Elijah's aware of it. Um, Elisha becomes aware of it, maybe through Elijah himself. But the word is out that Elijah is not going to finish his ministry in kind of a normal fashion of living out his three score and ten and dying, but that God is going to supernaturally take him up into heaven uh, by a whirlwind. And so 
Elijah's now traveling, and this is the day that he's going to be taken up uh, into heaven. He's traveling with Elisha. Important to realize that at this point in time, Elisha has been a servant to Elijah for a full ten years. So they've got a long history together, and Elisha has been being trained as a prophet. And probably the best way that you can be trained, and that is the come-alongside method of watching and listening and learning. And so this is the history that they uh, have uh, together. So Elijah knows that he's going to be taken up into heaven, and he's going to go uh, to Gilgal, and he's going to... Uh, go to Bethel. He's also going to uh, uh, go to Jericho and, and visit these uh, schools of the prophets that existed in those days. The schools have been started probably by Samuel. And uh, it makes you think it, what it makes me think about here is here is um, Elijah. And he realizes this is his last day before he's going to be taken into heaven. If somebody were to come to you and they were to say, listen, you've got one day, God's taking you to heaven today. I mean, what kind of a difference would it make on our day? You say, well, I do this and I do that and do this and, and that. The interesting thing about Elijah is he just proceeds to do what he had planned to do all along. He just continues the ministry that God had called him to. No big special change in plan. He just had intended to go to this school to encourage the students there, go to this school, encourage the students there. And so this is what he does. Probably the person who is the best prepared for the rapture, the return of the Lord for us, is the person who could honestly say with Elijah, if the Lord came to take me today, I wouldn't do anything different than what I've got planned for the day. And if there is a jarring difference between what I have planned for the day and what I and then what I would do if I knew this information, then there's probably some readjustment of priorities and lots of things that need to occur. I think it's beautiful. He said, no, I'm in the middle of God's will. I'm doing what he's uh, told me to do. He takes me home today up into heaven. He'll catch me uh, just the way I want him to catch me. I like it. Now, Elijah is going to put Elisha through a little bit of a test to test his commitment uh, to becoming the prophet in Israel to follow him. And so Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please. And uh and for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. You stay here. I'm heading to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And so this first attempt to uh, leave him behind, uh, he is determined and, and says, there's no way I am sticking uh with you Now, the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, they came out to Elisha and they said to him, do you? They didn't go to Elijah. They went to Elisha. Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? He's going to take him on out of here. And Elisha said to him, yes, I know. Keep silent. Apparently, this either saddened his heart that he's going to be parted with, from his a friend now of 10 years that he respected so much in this office, or maybe he just felt what was going on was too sacred to just talk with a bunch of guys that wanted to talk about it over a cup of coffee. And then Elijah said to him, Elisha, second test, you stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so they came to Jericho. Now, the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And so he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. And then Elijah, test number three, he said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. And, the, and fifty of the sons of the prophets went and they stood facing them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan River. And so as, as they're continuing to make their way, these fifty students, they know that something is up. 
Uh, they, we talk about giving people a polite distance. That's what they're giving them, a polite distance. They're watching it from afar. They want to see how God is going to take Elijah up into heaven uh, by that uh, whirlwind. Now, Elijah took his mantle or his cloak, and a mantle for a prophet was a symbol of, of God's anointing upon him. And so it was a, a kind of a symbol of of the Holy Spirit and God's power and anointing upon him. And so he took his mantle and he rolled it up and he struck the water of the Jordan. And it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on muddy ground. So what it says, does it? It says they crossed over on dry ground. And the whole thing is intended to remind them of a couple of great crossings in Israel's history where they crossed Uh, The uh, Red Sea on dry ground under uh, Joshua, they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. And what is being communicated by Elijah through Elijah to Elisha is no matter how bad the condition of this nation is that God is calling you to follow me in service to you related to God is not diminished. His power is not diminished. His abilities have not diminished. His voice is not diminished. He's as alive and supernatural and wonderful and desirous of doing good things as, as ever he was. And so this was a great encouragement to Elisha's uh, faith. And so it was that when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I may do for you. He knows he's going. He wants to do a favor for him before I'm taken away from you. And what if Elijah came to you and me? Don't shout out. And said, listen, I'm going to be clearing out of here. And I've had this relationship with God and the revelation and the supernatural of the whole thing. You just ask me. What do you want that I can bless you before I leave? Could I have the lottery, the winning numbers to the lottery, please? Or a lucky rabbit's foot? Somebody asks for it all. Fascinating here. So this is the, the offer that's being made. And Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. I bet that had to bless Elijah's heart. Man, you've been holding out on me. That, a guy like that's tucked inside of you? Elijah, you're leaving before the end of the day. If you could give me one thing, I would take a double portion of what I see in your life and the calling that is upon your life. I mean, this guy knows how to ask big in terms of what will affect the kingdom of God in the world and eternity. And so this is the offer that is made and then the request that Elisha makes. Now, this, in this request that Elisha is making here, that a, uh, that a double portion uh, of Elijah's spirit would be upon him, that basically what Elijah, Elisha was requesting was to be the one to continue the work of Elijah in Israel and that God would give him the supernatural power to accomplish it in the same way that God had given it uh, to Elijah. So the double portion in the Old Testament was the portion that a father gave to his oldest son at the time of his death or at the time of his departure. And when the father would give the oldest son a double portion of the inheritance. It wasn't just that the son received twice as much material wealth as the other sons, but the double portion communicated that the oldest son had taken over his father's role as the head of the family. This is the problem that Esau had when he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew to his brother Jacob. Esau wanted the blessings. He wanted the the double material blessings that came with being the oldest son. But he did not want the birthright, the responsibility of now becoming the head of the family and leading the family spiritually into not just material greatness, but into spiritual greatness. And he wasn't interested in any of that. But Jacob was interested. 
in that for his family. And so here is Elisha saying, I want to continue your role in the nation of Israel. I, I want I am here and now committing my life to the uh, spiritual health and the well-being of this nation. I want to be what you've been to the nation a voice for God, an influence for righteousness, and one who calls upon uh, everyone to know and to live for God. And so his whole request was spiritual rather than material. And he wanted to be a worthy successor. And this blesses me. A worthy successor to Elijah. He didn't just want the role. But he wanted the power and the, the anointing and the enabling from God to be able to do what he had seen Elijah do and have the influence that Elijah had. It's a very, very, it's a big request, but it's a humble request because he recognized that in his request that what he needed needed to come from God in order for him to be successful. And Elijah said to him in response, I love a recording of this exchange. I mean, just the pauses, the thinking, the way, the tone, the whole thing. This back and forth of three sentences. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. In other words, Elijah's saying, you've asked for something I can't give you. I'd have given you anything I had. But you're asking for something that only God can give. Nevertheless, if, and you notice that word, if, if you see me, somehow Elijah gets revelation from God related to this. If you see me when I'm taken up from you, then your request shall be so for you. God will grant this request. But if you're not there, then it shall not be so. And then it happened as they continued on and they talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into uh, heaven. And so uh, as he is uh, taken away from swept up into heaven from the face of the earth, I think it's important to. Uh, notice, I mean, everything about the whole event is designed to speak about the supernatural. It wasn't it, the fiery chariot and the fiery horses. Their lone place in this whole thing was to separate Elisha from Elijah so that the whirlwind could then take Elijah up into heaven. He didn't get into the chariot and go up into heaven. The whirlwind took him up into heaven, as the scriptures uh, had, had said. And I think about always when I think about this situation where the Lord takes Elijah up into heaven, how happy he must have been that the Lord didn't listen to his prayer uh, decades earlier, when, or at least a decade earlier, where he was calling on the Lord to kill him because things weren't going the way that he thought they should go in terms of what God was doing. And here is this wonderful event that was uh, in his future. And, of course, Elijah is the second person to be taken directly into heaven, independent of death uh, in the Old Testament, the other being Enoch, where we're told in Genesis, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And uh, they won't be the last uh, to be taken into heaven, independent of death. I'm hoping for the Enoch-Elijah option. Uh, it's called the rapture of the church. And so now the interesting thing about Elijah is he will come back and he will die a natural death. He will die in the sense that he will die a martyr's death. Uh, Elijah will be one of the two witnesses that is a witness for the Lord uh, in Jerusalem at the uh, during the great tribulation period in witnessing to the Jews to the fact that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Messiah. And so he will uh, he will then. Uh, and it's interesting in terms of that earlier event where the 50s are killed by fire. It's a preview of, of Revelation chapter 13. When during the great tribulation period, uh, men are sent uh, uh, probably by the Antichrist against 
uh, Elijah and probably Moses as the other witness. We don't know for sure. And as they come up against them, uh, Elijah is allowed to use fire to uh, protect themselves, their ministry, their voice and wipe out any particular force. And so uh, but he will ultimately both of them will allow be allowed by God to die after three days uh, of being on CNN and Fox News and uh, on the Internet and, and all of that. They will then be uh, raised right up. Uh, from the ground, their dead bodies will never be buried. They'll just be left on the street. People will be giving presents to one another. The Bible says over the death of these two righteous men. And then on the third day, they both stand up and they're both taken up into heaven. Wow. We're going to have good seats for that. <laughs> Perhaps see that. And Elijah's response, Elisha's response to all of this, when he saw it, he cried out, my father, my father. This is the affection that he had for Elijah. And he called him the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. He looked at Elijah and he, he associates military imagery to his life. And basically what he's communicating is, I have just lost, and this nation has just lost, its greatest defense. And a man who would stand for God and call a nation to repentance and to righteousness, that that man was more instrumental in the stability and the prosperity and the health of Israel than all of her armies and all of her chariots. And that's true of any nation, any time in history. One of my favorite quotes in this vein is a quote by uh, Alex uh, de Tocqueville. And he was a French politician, uh, uh, political thinker, and a historian. And he wrote of America in 1826. He had spent considerable time in the United States at that time. And he'd come over for the sole purpose of trying to find out what made America tick. And he came to the following conclusion. He said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it was not there in her fertile land and boundless prairies. And it was not there. Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And it's true. And it's not only true concerning an Elijah or an Elisha, but it's true of all of us as Christians. And the stand that we are to make is an influence in the world that we live in. And so he is uh, 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 cries this out. This is the eulogy that he gives to his friend as he disappears. And uh, so when he saw him no more, he took hold of his own clothes. He tore them in two pieces uh, uh, as an outward act of grieving, speaking about how his heart was broken to have lost this co-worker uh, and labor in the gospel. But he took up the mantle of Elijah. Elijah went up in the whirlwind, but he left his mantle behind. God left it behind that had fallen from him. And he went back and he stood by the bank of the Jordan where they had been uh, just a little bit previously. And he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, probably rolled it up kind of like Elijah had. And he struck the water and he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? So Elijah had given him the promise. You see me taken up. Then that's a sign that God has called you to follow me as the next prophet in Israel. And so here is Elisha. He knows the promise has been given, but he doesn't feel any different. He doesn't look any different. And so now he wants to see if this has really happened. And so this is the test that he puts it to. And when he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. Can you imagine? That's like every that's like 200 Christmases all rolled together for a kid. 
all right, it's true. I've been my dream of of all my life. I've been behind those oxen and that plow and plowing and plowing in the hope that one day I could be great for God in this nation. In ten years, I've poured water on the hands of the greatest prophet that the nation has ever known in the hopes that I would one day learn enough that I could take his place. All of this hope and expectation that is in him, the desire to be great for God and great for the nation. And then when that water parts, he realizes that he has both the calling and the anointing of God. Wow! And then Elisha, he crossed then over that dry ground. Now, when the sons of the prophets who uh, were the, uh, the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho, they saw him and they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and they bowed down to the ground before him, not to worship him, but to respect him. They recognized the mantle has passed on to him. And then they said to him, look, now there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please uh, let us uh, let them go and search for your master, for Elijah, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord uh, kind of took him up and dropped him somewhere or something and or just took him up kind of a partial thing and, and didn't take them all the way to heaven, but cast them in some mountain or into some remote valley. So they said, we want to just make sure he's really gone and allow us to go out and to search. Now, they all already had the word of the Lord, that the Lord was going to take him up into heaven. It's a, they're doubting the word of God in this. And, and so Elisha said, you shall not send anyone. Don't waste your time. He's in heaven. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, I mean, they just kept badgering him and badgering him. He finally just he was embarrassed for their unbelief. And he said, go ahead and send them, send the 50 out. And therefore, they went out and they searched for three days and they couldn't find him. And when they came back to him, because he had stayed in Jericho, just having lemonade and stuff there. Jericho's a beautiful place. He was going to go out there and follow them. They knew they were going to find him. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? And then the men of the city of Jericho came to Elisha. They realized he is now the prophet that has followed Elijah. And they have a very practical problem in their life. And they need a supernatural solution to that problem. And so they're to be commended here in turning to the prophet of the Lord with their problem. And so they said, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant. And they're talking about Jericho and one of it's absolutely a beautiful oasis town in in Israel at the base of the Jordan Valley and and very, very fertile, uh, beautiful part of the world. And so the situation of the city is very pleasant, as my Lord sees but the water is bad. Well, you can have the most beautiful place in the world. You don't have water. You're in trouble. So the water is bad and the ground is barren. Everywhere we try to water with this water, it just kills the crops. It could also uh, have an indication in the original language that it's talking about the women of the city of Jericho, that the water was uh, not allowing them to uh, conceive. So there's a barrenness in, in that way. Something was bad going on related to the water in the city. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And so they brought it to him. And then he went out to the source of the water and he cast in the salt there. And he said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water and from it there shall be no more death or barrenness. And so the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. And you can go to Jericho today. and The water is uh, very, very delicious there. And so this miracle of uh, Elisha lives on uh, even uh, uh, to this uh, to this day. Now, in this uh, healing of the water, again, there's the intent on the part of God in his grace here. The intent of the miracle is designed to turn the nation away from its idolatry and back to the worship of the Lord. Elijah will uh, of, the, of the miracles of Elijah. Um, there are 16 miracles that are recorded uh, for Elijah concerning his life in the historical books. Only eight for Elijah. 
So 16 for Elisha, double, doesn't mean one's better than the other, but uh, Elisha's only second to Moses in terms of the number of miracles that God uh, wrought uh, through, through him. And, and so he's ministering here at a time in the nation of Israel where it's very dark spiritually. They're given over to all kinds of idolatry and the wickedness and, and wickedness is strong and all. And so God is using miracles through Elijah and through Elisha just to constantly keep a testimony of himself before the northern kingdom of Israel in their apostasy so that maybe they'll come to repentance. And this miracle of the healing of the waters was intended to communicate to these men, these elders of the city who had showed respect to God and also to his servant Elijah and obeyed his word, that if you'll obey God, you will be blessed. God was just letting the nation know that through the miracle. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Therefore, know... That the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. So this whole miracle is designed to communicate to these people. Listen, there is all of this blessing and more found and walking with the Lord. Now, the, the flip side of, of this is, is also going to be taught by Elisha, beginning in verse 23. That if you want to come up against God and disobey his servants and disobey his word, then there's trouble there. And so Elisha, he went up there uh, from, uh, from Jericho to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city. And they mocked him and they said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. That could take you off. <laughs> Somebody said that to you. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this and it's important to realize, and I am watching the time, so relax. I'm just watching it tick away. But <laughs> I am. I know I'm, I'm very nearly done. Important to realize that these these youths were not children and uh, they were young men. And uh, we see a little bit later here in verse 24 that at least 42 of them are going to end up mauled in this uh, experience. And so there are probably many more than the 42 that scattered from the bears before the bears got a hold of them. And so their actions and their words and their numbers, it all adds up to a situation that on a physical level would have made someone like Elisha or any of us uh, be concerned for our safety. You got a bunch of young guys that are all feeding off of one another and they have no respect for God, for his servant, for the elderly and, uh, and, and they're making these calls out against them. And so you just got this gang that is uh, doing this thing and the whole situation is escalating. And it isn't unlikely that because Bethel was a center for the calf worship that was initiated by uh, Jeroboam, that they might very well have been young false prophets of the worship of the golden calves. And they knowing that Elisha, and Elijah, his protege, had uh, speaking, you know, disfavorably and standing up against their idolatry and their religion that they were now, you know, coming in kind of a religious contention that was going on here. And so they're mocking his bald head. And that's just a plain old personal uh, slur. And when they tell him, go up, you bald head, go up, they're basically saying they're referring to Elijah and they're saying that he needs to go up to heaven just like his uh, uh, his master Elijah had gone up into heaven. In other words, they wanted to be rid of him and his godly influence and his ministry in the same way that they were evidently very happy to be rid of Elijah. So here we see the ill effects of the worship of Baal. And these golden calves, just a few generations down in terms of the kind of children it's producing in, in Israel. So they treat him with terrible, terrible uh, disrespect. 
So he turned around and he looked at them. You'll excuse me, but I happen to really enjoy this story. (laughs) And he pronounced the curse on them in the name of the Lord. He did not curse at them. But disrespect of this kind was absolutely forbidden in the law of Moses. And these are Jews. And so he basically asked God to take care of the situation here. And two female bears, I don't know why they had to be female versus males. You hunters could probably tell me. But two female bears came out of the woods and they mauled 42 of the youths. And so they came and noticed it doesn't say that they mauled him to death. But mauling is grisly enough, isn't it? Okay. All right. Okay. No, it's late. I know. You'll, you'll like it tomorrow. So these bears come out, teach them a, a lesson about disrespect here and... and uh, who knows how many of the use that there, there were and all. And the lesson here, again, this miracle intended to communicate uh, those who show disrespect to God and his servant Elisha would receive a curse. And again, I'm going to read. God was just letting the nation know. And I'm going to read the same passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 11 to you again. Therefore, know that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. At Jericho, they weighed in on that side of God's word. God's word's a two edged sword. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who him who hates him. He will repay them. To his face. And therefore, the lesson of both of the miracles, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. And then he went from there, verse 25, to Mount Carmel, probably on his way home. He visits the site of the great miracle that God had performed through Elijah on Mount Carmel. And then he made his way there, returned to Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, a very, very uh, dark place. And that's where he uh, began his ministry. Let's stand together.